It's good to see you. Uh, again, my name is Andrew, uh, one of the pastors here at Sanctuary, and uh, I'm happy to uh, close out this series with this story. Um, I wanted to tell you, uh, for me, in following the way of Jesus, you know, everyone, everyone's wired a certain way. Anyone done Myers-Briggs? Yeah, anyone done the Enneagram? Yeah, a few of you strength finders. It's the same people. I've done all three. <laughs> How many of you love that stuff? Hands up. Like these are like personality tests kind of thing. Yeah. How many of you like you like even the mention of them, you feel like you're in a box? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of you raised it twice. You were, <laughs> I love them. I hate them. Um I uh how I'm, I've realized how I'm, part of how I'm just wired and I could get into the background and bore you with like my personality, my upbringing. I don't know if it's, I always joke about the Irish blood pulsing through my veins. Um, you know, how, how I was raised, how I was raised to see the scriptures. For me, there has been, and, and I think some of this is actually how God has gifted me um, or given me this sort of prophetic edge. Now it's been really unhealthy and it's been really ugly at times, but when it's been healthy, it's, I, I gravitate toward the critique of the thing that's not good. I gravitate toward uh, what needs to be like righted, <laughs> what, what needs to, what, where there's injustice and bring justice to it. Um, I've, I've, I posted something up and I didn't think it would get this like grand reply, but our feedback on Facebook last week or I think it was on Twitter and it went to my Facebook and that's where I see all the comments, which was, uh, man, as a pastor during this political season, I, being a pastor has been really good because it's caused me to have a lot of self-control. I just don't post a lot of stuff. And there've been so many times where I've typed something and then said, no, that's not good. In a moment of like blood boiling at a certain comment or a certain thing, uh, or I'll post something and then I'll delete it right after. Anyone ever done that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're all like that. You're like... This is, I'm so angry. No, I should not take that back. Like 30 seconds later, you're like, that was a bad idea. Um, And I gravitate toward this sort of like pick up your cross and follow him. Following Jesus is hard. It requires a sacrifice, right? I'm constantly wrestling with God in moments of like real stillness and, and, and gentleness with the Lord or when I find myself just remembering God's grace it's in that same moment that I find myself quickly rebuked by God. God just uses those moments of like, yeah, like, yeah, you know that you are loved. And so Andrew, stop feeding your mind with that or stop doing that. And so it's hard. There's places of sacrifice where uh, I've joked a lot about how fickle a vegetarian I am, right? There's like places of self-control where I'm convicted. It's a great analogy for me. It's like I'm convicted that I... Like not eating animal product. Like I'm really like convicted of that. I've read studies. I'm convic- but then you put a plate of buffalo wings in front of me and I just crumble like in- instantaneous. And like buffalo wings, right? You think it'd be like a nice steak, maybe that. No, just like junky buffalo wings. Like, and I, anyone else, you feel this, I feel this tension of like, well, no, following Jesus is a sacrifice, right? Like life is a sacrifice. You gotta give up the things, And what's interesting is though Jesus talks a lot about sacrifice, he talks a lot about picking up your cross, a lot about what it means to follow him. And how many of you, that's kind of normal language. Maybe you're new to church today. And even coming into church, you have this this low-level sense 
like low-lying sense that they're gonna ask me to do some stuff. They're gonna ask me to sacrifice some stuff. And this is, this is true of Jesus. He is inviting us to this deeper life, with me, which means, according to the way of Jesus, right, shedding certain things. But Jesus rarely spoke about sacrifice when it came to discipleship. And let me define discipleship simply for a moment, like becoming more like Jesus, becoming more like the teacher. When Jesus starts talking about what it means to actually become more like Jesus, sacrifice is not the primary lens. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, he calls people to sacrifice. He calls the disciples to leave their livelihood and follow him. The rich young ruler comes to mind. There's a lot of stories. We notice that when Jesus talks about becoming more like him, he generally speaks through the lens of investment, which is a funny term to use. And so I wanna unpack this for a minute. What initially looks like a sacrifice, Jesus often says, will actually pay off in the end. Now we don't do this sort of like in some like, if I just do this, then I'll get the goods. But there's this sense of, no, 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 to let this go, to sacrifice this is actually an investment in that which is most True. A few statements just to reinforce what I'm saying if you have your Bibles. Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. There's something about the correlation here between losing your life actually in order to find it. It's not sacrifice because you should, because life is hard, because that's what the church says to do. Do it. Trust me. Trust me. Just do it. No, there's a sense of actually there's a good thing on the other side. The kingdom of heaven, this is our text from last week, which we're gonna refer back to a few times. The kingdom of heaven, which is the rule and reign of Jesus, like everything in its right place here on earth. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went out and sold all he had and bought the field. There's joy. He sold everything he had so he could get the thing there was investment. I'm getting rid of all of this so I can get this. Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. It's a promise that you'll actually find real life if you will only let the old one go. Dallas Willard, a writer, I highly encourage you to read more of. He writes, the cost of non-discipleship, so the cost of like not becoming more like Jesus, is much higher than the cost of discipleship. Discipleship, he says, is a bargain. In other words, Jesus isn't talking about making a sacrifice because it's the right thing to do. He's talking about making a sacrifice that actually becomes an investment. It's like that you can step into the life of heaven. You can be aligned with how things actually are. This is like epic stuff. Christians believe some out there stuff. We actually believe you can begin to live and walk in the life of heaven where everything is right and flourishing and beautiful and good and everything every person has ever longed for. We can begin to step into that flow now because of what Jesus has done. So what's happening in the text then that Joman read, our text for the day, which I'm gonna go back to in a minute, it is, in my opinion, a cost-benefit analysis. Anyone ever done a cost-benefit analysis for business or something like that? So an example, um, or let's, let's do a couple. Eating donuts every meal. 
Every meal. Benefits. Go. Real quick. Benefits. Yummy. What? Sugar. Constant sugar rush. Benefits. Inexpensive. True. Unless you're going, yeah, unless you're going the high, there's a couple like high class donut shops about to open that are about to break the bank of a lot of you who have Dunkin' Donuts problems. Anyone else? Benefits. Fills you up. Okay, what would be the cost of eating donuts every meal? Early death. What would someone say? What? Obesity, right? Diabetes. Well, we're going, we're going there. <laughs> all the medical residents are all here. <laughs> They're like mad that I'm even talking about it. <laughs> Students, cost-benefit analysis of not doing your homework. What's the benefit? Free time, sleep. Cost-benefit of not finishing your finals this week. What's the benefit? <laughs> Everyone's like... Are you drunk? <laughs> What's the cost? Huh? Failing. <laughs> I think that's what's going on in this story. Really simply, is it cost benefit? It sounds a funny way to talk about this parable. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost? to see if you have enough money to complete it. Now, first off, Jesus is using a story and he's using a tower. Any other epic tower stories in the scriptures? Babel. Babel. Now, those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible, I, I, I won't belabor this, but the Tower of Babel is an epic moment in Jewish history and it's a story basically of humans, sort of an Adam and Eve story all over again, right? It's a story of, look, we got this. We can become like God. Story of hubris, story of technology gone awry. It's a story of self and idolatry. So uh, there's many writers who point out that on the Jewish consciousness, you mention a, it's like mentioning a garden, and you go right back to the only real pivotal garden in the whole of scriptures. You mention a tower. There's really only one tower of note in the Old Testament. That'd be the Tower of Babel. This, this story might not be a good story. This story in your in your in your Bibles, the title likely says, if you have a New International or ESV, will say the cost of discipleship. And many, many folks, and I'm gonna make this case, believe that that's actually probably not the best title for this section. It's probably not the best title. It's actually probably a better title, and maybe the title of my talk today would be Learning from Fools. Learning from Fools. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you sit down and estimate the cost and see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees you will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. So, not enough money. And where's the deception in this story? The deception of the person is that they have a surplus. The deception is that they're they're fine, I have some money, so I'm gonna build this thing. And they haven't actually counted the cost of the thing that they're aiming at which may in this story actually may not be a good thing to begin with. Let's kind of log that away as a few details as we go through these. Verse 31, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able and then, I'm sorry, whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, 
He will send a delegation while the others is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. The king. Now, this story, far be it from me to try to assume what's in the mind of the writer. But again, these writers and the way these gospel writers tell stories is constantly referencing the Torah, the Old Testament, the story of these first people that this was written to. Um, Many, again, have pointed out that this would have triggered like every defeat that's ever happened. This is the story of Israel all over again. We don't have enough to defeat the enemy. We don't, we are actually aiming at the wrong thing with not enough firepower. No troops. And I think the deception here, right, is prestige. We have some power. And this is the kind of thing that would produce complacency or blindness. I have something. I'm aiming at that to defeat that thing, to go there. The story of power and security. And I don't actually have what it even takes to hit the mark. I think both these stories are about security. I think these stories are about identity. I think they're about outcomes and strivings and dreams that you can't hit. You can't hit. Neither of these folks can actually hit the thing. They're aiming at something that isn't good that you can't hit anyway. Aiming at something that isn't good that you can't hit anyway. So what if these stories are actually about foolish pursuit? What if this is a warning from Jesus about following him that actually stop pursuing stuff? Stop chasing after things that you're not going to be able to hit anyway. Let that go before you become spiritually bankrupt. One writer says, perhaps Jesus is issuing a warning to stop chasing after bad investments. Maybe that's why Jesus warns of trying to gain the world, but forfeit your soul. You can apparently win the battle and build the tower and actually lose the thing that's most important. You can, we know this. We, we reference this all the time. This is the story of humanity. I gotta find a better analogy, but I use this every time, so forgive me. It's like the pop song. Every pop song that's ever been written about money can't buy me love, from the Beatles to Rihanna, and yet we still keep singing it, not learning the lesson. I think it was Jim Carrey who said, I wish everyone could get rich and get everything they want so they would realize it like holds no weight in this world at all. It will not make you happy. Somebody down front just said, more money, more problems, man. (laughs) Prophet B.I.G., may he rest in peace. Maybe we are supposed to learn from fools here. And here's why I think this case is so strong at the end of this. What's said at the very end of this section, verse 33, in the same way, Those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. Why would Jesus tell a story about somebody who needs more, like they should count the cost, like don't build a tower, don't go to war, right? This is a a story of, of, of more. If discipleship is supposed to be building a tower or going out to war or something like that, it makes no sense for Jesus to then say, renounce all you have at the end of it. It's the only way we make sense of actually this verse at the end. These stories show us that there are insufficient assets for misdirected pursuits. 
insufficient assets for misdirected pursuits. What misdirected pursuits do you have in your life right now? Be honest with yourself. It sucks to be honest with yourself about this stuff. Where are you pursuing things that you know don't hold a lot of weight? This is not some indictment toward anyone or anything or any cause in particular. I just noticed this sometimes. The amount of times, if, if, you're, if your social media feed, I know this isn't an accurate statement for many, but if that was representative of what you care about because it's the stuff you put out there into the public space, if that's representative of what's in your heart, of what you're aiming at, of what you want other people to know, when's the last time you posted about the goodness of God? Again, don't let that, you know what? Let that do whatever it's gonna do. Where do you need to do a cost-benefit analysis in your life? Where do we need to forsake the lesser to receive the more? Right? There's stuff that's just less than. It's just not as good. And it could be good things. Many of us, and this is okay, we go right to like the wretched thing I'm doing, right? How many of you have gone right to that addiction that you can't shake? You've gone right to that thing that you keep pursuing that's so obvious. I think that there's something here that's actually much more robust and beautiful. It's that, no, there's a lot of good stuff and we put that kind of primarily in front of everything else and there's a greater life waiting for us. I share this with some of our leaders. There's this idea of consecration. Consecration is basically this. It's sort of the idea of blocking a lane of traffic in order to accomplish something. So it's like, I'm gonna section this off because we gotta work on this and I wanna direct the flow of traffic like in a particular direction. It forces the direction of traffic. Consecration isn't just about like letting go of bad things. Actually, it usually is just about focusing in on the good things that need to be laid down to pursue the better. And for me, this is the story that it triggered and I realize this may not resonate with a lot of you, but it's really the best one I have. I went to a summer camp for years. It was a Christian summer camp. I would come home almost every summer. I mean, I went like through high school, like when you usually kind of stop going to summer camp for a lot of folks, like I was like more hyped than ever to go. It was like muse, there's so many musicians there and people who love Jesus. And, you know, it helped that there were like just really cute girls that, you know, anyway, it helped, it helps. Missionary dating, we'll talk about that later. Um, it was just a really beautiful thing. And here's what it was. I would come home and tell my dad and mom, guys, we got to move up to camp. We have to do this. Or I'd come home, my dad is a pastor. And so I would say, dad, you got to preach more like this. Basically telling him how these youth pastors would preach. Our space could be way more like X, Y, or Z. And the reason why I did this was because it was a week or two weeks long of nothing, but like everything in some way coming back to the life of God. There's all this accountability everywhere in like a good spurring on sense. We go and we have great conversations about music. And some of the music, wouldn't, it wasn't even like it was all Christian music, but it would all come back to like, what does it mean to be a musician who's a Christian? We'd go and we hear speakers that would make us laugh and they like got us as like 17 year old kids. Like everything in the more devos at night and then we'd wake up in the morning and we'd be cleaning and we'd do a quick devotional and a reading and then we'd go and we'd eat together and in the midst of like throwing cereal at one another and just being stupid and fart jokes and all of it. 
It was like everything was woven into us becoming a community. We're all focused in the same direction. There was like a, 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 a spatial consecration, for lack of a better way to put it. Now, I know you can't live on the mountaintop and all that, but honestly, there's something, there was a life there that I tasted and saw and I realized like, oh my gosh, imagine if you could live like this all the time. And the church is actually supposed to be that. But like in every moment, like we can be walking and becoming more and more like Christ. Like the life of the kingdom and the life of the ages like that we can actually journey with one another and commit to one another. It's why no matter how broken or hypocritical or messy or you don't quite find the right fit of home groups that we have, we keep pushing people to those things because to have a group of people that you're journeying with, that you're eating with, that make sure there are no needs among you that are constantly encouraging you, not just in a general sense, but literally asking, hey, how's your walk with Jesus going? Bad, cool, let's talk about it. Right, let's walk with one another and literally spur one another on. A lot of times in the church, the only times we get together is to talk about all the stuff that we're jacked up in, right? That's not good. Like, where, where do you need encouragement? We're gonna come alongside you and do the thing that will help you get to where, like, to help fuel the dream that God's put in your heart. I digress. I think these are stories where we need to count the costs. We need to do a better cost-benefit analysis of our life. Where do we need to forsake the lesser to receive the more? If you think it's hard living the way of Jesus. I realize this is a statement by a 35-year-old. I have not lived a ton of life yet, but I'm like, I'm in, the, I'm in the thick of it now. And I have seen this to be true. If you think it's hard living the way of Jesus, you should try living the other way. If you think it's hard living the way of Jesus, try in the long run living the other way. It won't work out. The cost-benefit analysis does not work. There's something so much more. You'll be fine. You'll live a life like everybody else, but there's something more. Dallas Willard in his book, Revolution of Character, gives us a picture of what we gain as disciples of Jesus. He says this. Sorry, I don't have this on the screen. What, he's talking about the life of God, how beautiful this is. What an astonishing vision the water of heaven flows through our being until we are fully changed people. We, he's talking about fathers of Jesus, we wake up each morning breathing the air of this new world. We experience a new consciousness and our character is transformed. We drop our deceitful practices, our insincerity, our defensiveness, our envy, our slander, and we move outward toward others in genuine love. This is just him reflecting. And I read that and I go, yes, on my best days, yes. On my best days, I wake up and remember that I am loved, that I've been forgiven, that God has things for me and I can step into the life of heaven and begin to grow in more and greater faithfulness, to be on, like, on mission. When we say that, it's like literally joining God and putting everything in the world back together. That starts with being a good dad. It starts with doing the dishes that starts with praying over my home. That starts with helping like steward what's happening here in my church and our work. It starts with loving those that are hurting and walking alongside. That starts with celebrating and eating and drinking with, with people that I love and people that are difficult. That this life of heaven I can step into. Now I read that paragraph from Willard and I go, yes. Look, as a Christian, 
I am simply trying to orient myself around living a particular kind of way in light of who I believe or what I believe is at the center of everything, which is a who. This is the kind of life that Jesus taught was possible. I simply think that the way of Jesus is the best possible way to live. This isn't irrational. This isn't blind faith. It's just being honest that everybody is living a particular way. Everybody is. And so I'm convinced that being generous is a better way to live in light of the generosity of God. I'm convinced that forgiving people and not carrying around bitterness is a better way to live. I get an amen? Like I'm convinced, some of you are with me, right? I'm convinced that having compassion and laying down my life for the defenseless and the hurting is a better way to live. I'm convinced that pursuing peace at all costs is a better way to live. I'm convinced that listening to the wisdom of the scriptures and the, and the fathers and mothers of our faith is a better way to live. I'm convinced that being honest with myself and sober-minded about the brokenness of the world is actually a better way to live. More than that, or in light of that, what feeds that and fuels that is I'm convinced that the good news that God the creator has come to rescue us from sin and renew everything in and through the work of Jesus on our behalf to establish heaven on earth through his people in the power of the Holy Spirit, that that living into that story, the gospel is a better way to live. Amen. I say this all the time, man, but G.K. Chesterton's quote, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's that it hasn't been tried. We stand at a distance. We're guilty of this in our home groups. We're gonna be making some changes this summer. Even though we've been trying to lean into this more and more. We come together, we debate a topic or we discuss a topic. We wrestle with it. We talk about what it might mean. Some of us find it interesting. Some of us find it disturbing. Some of us are encouraged. And then we leave unchanged. We don't actually practice it. I heard someone say, if people even just practice like 5% of what was like talked about in the scriptures on a Sunday morning, my gosh, the church would be revolutionized. But we love to live in our head. We create a worldview and then we step out, right? We know this is our propensity, but to actually step into the life of Jesus. So a few invitations as I close. To return to one of, uh, like the last time uh, to the stories. In both these stories, in the tower and the story of the king, there is a chance or a choice, like a slight reprieve at the very end of the story. If you want to like turn back to them real quickly. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Once you sit down and estimate the cost and see if you have enough money to complete it. There's a moment here of like checking yourself. There's an invitation here. Pause, count the cost. Count the cost. The king, right? It gets a little bit more detailed with the king one. If he can't do it, if he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. And will ask for terms of peace. The king is like, you can pursue, you can actually make peace and not step into this suicide mission in front of you. The invitation is, will you 
forsake the lesser to receive the more. I don't know what that is for you. But what is the thing that is lesser that you need to receive the more? Of course, we sacrifice. It's hard not to have the second donut. It's hard. Come on. Any donut lovers in here? It's hard. It's hard not to let, for some of us at least, to let the test just, I'll just, I'll email them and say I was sick and buy a couple extra days. It's hard. It's hard. There's a sacrifice there. But we sacrifice X for the better of Y. Right? We sacrifice. We sacrifice immediate gratification for love. We sacrifice using people as objects and not following God's path for sex and marriage. We sacrifice that, right? We let that go for the sake of something more beautiful and holy. We sacrifice the fact that it could be hard and I don't have as much security and as much savings in the bank this month. I need to sacrifice that because there's this need in front of me because I need to do better at practicing generosity and let go of what God's given me, realizing that none of this is mine in the first place. So I I need to sacrifice that. I need to sacrifice it in order. What is the thing to receive the greater life that's in front of you? You will look back on your life and wish you had given more. Many of you who struggle with that with me, you will look back after coming into marriage and realize, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I could go through the list. Sex and money are just easy ones. They're probably really subtle things. I look back and wish I had not spent that much time in front of the television, in front of the video games. I think I mentioned this the other night. Like my buddy just stopped for an entire year. He stopped watching movies and TV. This wasn't some legalistic thing. It was just, he said, I'm turning 40. And I realized so much of my mind is co-opted with things that, and he loves movie, loves film, he loves narrative. This wasn't some like the evils of TV. It was just, there's more, there's like more to my life and more to my bandwidth. Like I need to give, give more of myself to the way of Jesus and see what happens. It was an experiment. I'd encourage you just to practice it. Maybe I'm wrong. Practice letting that thing go. Maybe it's a good thing. And actually filling it with the life of Jesus, practicing it, dwelling on it, going to God. My hypothesis is you will find greater life and joy and blessing and beauty and maybe even hardship, but hardship that will actually weirdly feel like a blessing. Corey and I, a couple weeks ago, got through one of the worst weeks in terms of helping people. It was like every person that we had been helping like took two steps backwards. Like we're talking like, I wish I could tell you. I can't, <laughs> I can't get into it. But oh my gosh, a week that should drain you. And because we were aligned and walking with the way of Jesus that week, because we are operating, this is, we are, it was like a win for us. We don't always hit these, but this one was, we got to the end of the week and went, I feel so, I think it was a text that was just like, I love being on the same team with you. I love getting to serve God with you like this. Like I look back at that week, I will not regret that week because it was hard. It was one of the greatest weeks of my life. I'm not being hyperbolic here. Like it was unbelievable that we got to participate in the life of Jesus. The week ended with a dinner with a couple friends that was just so refreshing and relaxing that went from talking about nonsense to trying new wine to leaving the night just praying for one another and saying, just bless you. That was it. The life of heaven, rejoicing and banquet and feasting and engaging the brokenness and ache of our world. 
We sacrifice, but it isn't costly to obtain this kind of life. You simply give up the old life and receive the new one as a gift given from God. Those who engage it aren't spiritual heroes. They are just responding to the opportunity, deal, life of of the ages. It's going back to last week. It's the treasure in the field. Of course, you sell everything to buy the field. Of course you do, there's treasure in it. We do it out of an understanding of the better. There's life with God, and then there's just sort of lesser stuff. And when God's up here, all the lesser stuff, the good gifts of God, the games, the TV, the story, the books, the friendship, all that, that actually gets amplified because it's sitting in its proper place underneath the rule and reign of Jesus. Do I have time? I have time. One more minute. I want to end with this. Some people, when they talk about following Jesus because of the fear of hell, I think this does a disservice because one, that's not how Jesus like spreads his kingdom. If you don't do this, you're going to hell. That's not actually in his vernacular. But here's the thing. When we act like um, the greatest incentive to follow Jesus is because you might end up there. We do such a disservice to the goodness of God. It's saying God's not good enough. I'm telling you, whatever and however that works out, I think there are grave consequences to not walking the way of love, the way of Jesus, and making Jesus your Lord. I don't know how that all works out. I've read enough books to fill a library on the subject. What I do know and I've seen and tasted and what I trust because of others that I've seen is that following Jesus and God is good enough. That actually is all the motivation that we will ever need. Fire insurance is not a way to live. Feeling okay in your head about, oh, I think I'm right with God because I said that prayer once when I was 10. That's, what is that? My voice cracked. When I talk about hell, I always go up here. (laughs) Those who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples because the gift is that good. If you give what you cannot keep anyway, if you give away what you cannot keep anyway, you will gain, you will receive the gift that you cannot lose. You're not gonna be able to keep all that anyway. That's not the stuff that will last. You will gain, you will receive what you cannot lose. He ends this whole section with simply saying, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Eugene Peterson just like, just translates this beautifully. Are you listening? Are you really listening? Are you really listening? Because for Jesus, this is everything. This is what he spends almost all his time talking about. What he talks about most is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. It's eager pursuit, it's reorientation, it's consecration, it's desiring the better. So what is it that is lesser that you need to let go of and say, God, I want to commit to letting this go? What do you need to pick up? The last time you spent some time with Jesus, the last time you actually practiced the things that Jesus talked about, not just memorized some verses, 
The last time you trusted that Jesus is Lord. Let me be clear, when we say the good news is that Jesus is Lord, when you say that and agree with that, this is what you're saying. I believe that what Jesus says is the best. I believe that being obedient to the way of Jesus is the best way. So if we trust the good news, that Jesus is king, and this king is like a loving father who breaks his body open and he pours his blood out for our healing, for the forgiveness of our sins and for the healing of the world. This is what he does. This good, good father is inviting us into the life of the ages. He says, you have no shame or guilt. I love you right where you're at, right in the midst of all of your junk. Receive this, repent and believe that I'm Lord, that I'm making all things new. Trust that you are loved and forgiven and that you can join me in extending that invitation and demonstrating this reality to the world. It's a good story. I highly, highly recommend you try it. I'm gonna pray for us. God, I have a sense that there are things that are tugging on people's hearts that they're deeply trying to avoid that there are things that are kind of like bubbling to the surface and they're just like, nope, no, no, stay down. Stay, nope, 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 we're not going there today. I got brunch after, I'm gonna see mom. We are not doing this right now. And yet this is a moment, Lord, that you are actually just calling them to let go of the lesser to receive the more. To count the cost. It's, it's too costly to build my tower. I, and I can't build it anyway. The thing that I'm aiming at isn't good and I can't get there anyway. They're ready to go to war, charge in and establish their security and they're not gonna be able to do it through their 401k and the house that they bought and getting just the right number of kids or whatever it is for them. They will not hit it, Lord. Thank you for these reminders. Thank you that we can learn from these fools and these stories. That unless we forsake the lesser, the weak, the fragile, the shallow and take hold of the more, Surely we'll, we'll perish. Surely we'll be, the tower will be left hanging half done. Surely it will be conquered. Whatever is just coming up in people's hearts that is from you, I pray, Lord, goes from a whisper to a scream in this moment. That for the joy we would let go. That we would then pick up and receive the gift incarnated for us in communion, the gift of your body and blood, the gift of yourself to us. Let go of the weaker and receive the gift of new life in you. If there are people in this room today that wanna say yes to Jesus, they wanna begin to trust the story. They wanna forsake the lesser and trust that Jesus is Lord, that they are loved and forgiven. Would you just for a minute, with everyone's eyes closed, I was gonna say, would you just throw your hand up for a minute? Just for a second, just throw your hand up. I wanna receive this. You can put your hands down. Thank you, Jesus. For those of us who there are things in our hearts that we like, they have just come up that we know we need to repent of and move closer 
move toward the way of Jesus. We need to figure out what it means to let that go so that we can walk with you. If there's something happening in your heart in that regard, would you throw your hand up? Just anybody, there's something that's happening in your heart right now. Like, just acknowledge it. Amen. Lord, for those um, who have said yes to Jesus, want to say yes to Jesus this morning. I thank you for the way that you continue to call people home. In fact, let's just take a moment. I just want to lead you guys. You can just pray this under your breath. You can pray this in your head. You can pray this with me. Jesus, I acknowledge my brokenness and sin. I turn away from the person, the person that is not who you called me to be. I trust what you have done for me. I trust that you've died on the cross for my sins. I trust that you have risen again, announcing your movement to renew all things. I trust that I am forgiven. I trust that you and you alone remove my shame and guilt and set me on a path of love and beauty. I repent and believe the good news that you are king and commit to walking with you. Amen. the rest of us, I pray as we come to the table that these things that are bubbling up in our hearts as we take the bread and we dip it in the cup and are reminded of God's love. Reminded of God's love for us and his forgiveness for us. And we would just gain insight on what this looks like to step away from the lesser and step into the more. In your name we pray. Amen.